Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, when we think about you being the creator and having made all things and having made us, it it makes us humble that you could love us so. And we praise you, Father, for your love and your care for us. We praise you for your Son that you gave that we might live. Father, thank you for giving us certainty and giving us confidence and boldness in living as your people. And we pray, Lord, that you will use us for the purposes that you have for your people. Father, we want to be faithful to you. Lord, as we look at your word and every time we open it, we pray that we will have soft hearts, that your word can mold us and shape us in how we see things and how we think and the decisions we make on how we're going to live. We pray that our lives might truly be in service to you and that you will be glorified. We praise you, Lord, for the grace you've given us. We freely admit that we need all that you provide through Christ. Be with us now. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. When God made men and women, God made us very different. And that, ev- that difference even extends into how we think and how we see things. We can see our clothes in a very different way. And so, f- for example, a-, a guy might look at a pair of shoes and a-, and a hoodie and go, I'm set for the week for whatever may come. And, and not so with the ladies. A woman's mind is a wonderful connection of many data points. I understand that in pregnancy, male children, male babies, their brains are washed twice with, a, um, with chemicals that cuts neurons and connections. And the ladies might go, that explains a lot. But we are very different, men and women. We see things different. We perceive and think differently. And and this can be also seen as we make plans to travel. She is going to begin making a lot of lists early. Started making lists about all the things that are needed for this trip. She might stay awake at night remembering, okay, there's this and this and this. And she's making that list and writing it down. And she's going to plan for every contingency. If it might be warm or might be cold, if it might rain. You know, if we happen to be here, would we stop at the beach? She's going to plan for all of that and pack for all of it. Plus, she's also going to handle the kids. She's going to pack for them, for every contingency they might have. Meanwhile, the guy... Well, it's a little before time to leave. 
and he kind of thinks about, well, what am I going to need for this? And he throws those few things into a bag, and I'm done. Let's go. We see very differently. We perceive things very differently. And sometimes that can get us into tension. That can create situations where, where relationship might be a little bit difficult. And yet, God said, after creating man and woman, that his creation was very good. You see, what God has done in making us very different fits wonderfully into his purposes. Because we are different in marriage, we are challenged to look beyond ourselves. We are challenged to grow into becoming something more, to see another person's perspective and how another person sees and thinks about things. We are challenged to move beyond our own little selfish ways. And God has provided us, between men and women in marriage, this opportunity to grow and to work at loving another person who is so very different from us. And in fact, because of of all of these differences, we can learn more about what it really means to love. Because if it was just easy, love is not going to be of the same quality. God made us different, and it works for his purposes. Different perspectives can be healthy. And they can provide this opportunity to learn. Proverbs 15 and verse 22 will say, Plans fail when there is no counsel, but with abundant advisors they are established. A king who has a a lot of advisors, who has a lot of these different perspectives and insight, he can glean from them and he can pick the best path forward. If everything was the same, he's going to be a lot weaker in planning to move forward. No, in an abundance of counselors, there is strength. And yet, although different perspectives can bring strength and can provide opportunity for growth, yet there's also a situation when differing viewpoints can be harmful. And this is especially true when people adopt a viewpoint that conflicts with what God has said and God has done. There's a number of examples. Remember when Israel's preparing to enter the land of Canaan? God has told them, I'm giving you this land. Twelve spies are sent in to look at it. What do they see? Well, they see these tall, fortified cities, uh, cities with these walls, massive walls around them. They, They see that the people living there are taller than them, and They look like grasshoppers in in the eyes of the residents of the land, and they feel like little grasshoppers. And they come back and they share a discouraging report. This is a wonderful land, but, but it's filled with people and these fortified cities. And the people, the Israelites, become confident in a perspective that we can't take this. Now that perspective is different than what God had said. God said, I'm giving it to you. But they felt confident in that perspective, and it led to disaster. 
when God has spoken, when God has revealed what is true, if people grab a perspective that's different, that's shaky ground. It gets you into hot water. The temptation to hang on to my own perspective when God has spoken differently gets us into that hot water. Remember King Ahaz of Judah? There was a situation where two of his, his neighboring countries, Israel and Syria, rose up to attack him. And through the prophet Isaiah, God told Ahaz, don't worry about this. Don't be afraid of these two armies that are come together against you. Don't worry about them. In fact, if you don't stand firm in faith, you will fall. Well, Ahaz, he has a perspective different than God. He is convinced that he needs military help. God tells him, you don't need military help, just trust in me. Well, this brings us to another point about sometimes perspectives. Sometimes we can be stubborn because we feel something to be right or this is the way it is. Or, or we believe deep in our heart that, that this is right and this is the way it is. And we can be slow to let go of that, even when God says it's different than what I already think. You know, an example of that might be sometimes when, when people become Christians, or, or even after they've been serving the Lord for a long time, they might still feel weighted down with guilt. That they might still feel like they're dragging this stuff from the past. They, they might feel like they're, they're so bad. And God has said, you're holy. You're forgiven. You're my people. And his message is a message of confidence and of new creation and of liberty. And it is wonderful and beautiful. But sometimes Christians continue to drag on this because they have a perspective about themselves. And they can't let go of it to accept what God has said about them. And you know, Satan loves that when our perspective is, is a little bit broken and doesn't align with what God has said. Because he can use that against us. Because if I feel broken and, and weighed down and, and terrible about myself, even though God's forgiven me and made me new, Satan says, you know what? Why resist this temptation? You know, you're already you're no good. And if we hang on to that perspective that doesn't align with what God has said about who we are, we become less resistant to temptation because what difference is it going to make? I already believe this about myself. What if I do it one more time? It's not going to make any difference. Yeah, this is what Ahaz did. He hung on to his perspective, even when God spoke differently. God said, don't call for military help. Trust in me. But Ahaz picked up the phone, called the king of Assyria, and said, I want military help. The king of Assyria came. He brought military help. And that seemed to solve the problem. But this just opened the door to the disaster that was just around the corner. At times in life, our life may seem like it's out of focus, that 
We might be uncertain about what we can count on. The, the future may be fuzzy. But when God acts, when God speaks, when God reveals to us the truth, it's like this, this lens, this, this clear lens that brings into focus the, the path forward that we can be confident about, that we can know how to move forward with God. He gives us the basis for a reliable confidence. And so I'm using this glass lens as an icon to, to remind us that God does want to bring what's important into focus. And, and the rest of it might be real fuzzy, but he has given us insight. And what we would do well is if we align our perspective with what God has revealed and how he's acted and what he has done. So this morning, we're going to survey a story. A story that begins in the Old Testament. It's going to reach into the New Testament. And we're going to look at this story in a series of snapshots. Snapshots that speak about God's love. Now, in each of these snapshots, there, there are people. And we might be tempted to think that this is a story about different people. It's not. This is a story of how God is at work and the lives of different people and at different points throughout history. This is the story of God in action, a story of his love for us. Our first two snapshots take us back to about 2,000 years before Jesus, to the time of Abram. And in that first snapshot with Abram, God tells Abraham, you're going to have descendants like the stars of the heavens. And Abraham looks at all those stars and he believes God. He, he accepts it. This is, what's going, this is what God's going to give me. He's going to give me descendants like these stars. Then God said to Abram, I'm going to give you all of this land where you're living. Now the land has other people living in it. It's occupied. He's the stranger. He's the immigrant. And he says, how can I know? How can I know that you are going to give me all of this land? There's a search for confidence. And God says to him, well, take a heifer, a goat, a ram, and three, three years, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, if God had told me to get these animals, I would then go, Lord, now what? I mean, you know, I got the animals, now what? Um, but Abram knew exactly what to do. If God had said to me, um, after I asked, how can I know? If God had said, get some parchment, get a quill pen, get some ink, get some wax and, and, and a seal that you can press into that wax, I'd go, okay, I know what we're doing. You're going to make some sort of a binding like contract. You're going to make some sort of a binding promise so that I can know. And here it is. God has given me this official word that I can know. Well, that's what they're going to do there, but it's in a different culture, in that near, ancient Near Eastern culture with these animals. And so Abram knows exactly what to do. So Abraham took all these for him and then cut them in two and placed each half opposite the other. The way that ancient Near Eastern 
covenants were made, these binding promises to one another, they would take an animal and they'd slice it in half and lay the two halves like this. And then whoever was making the promise. Many times, two kings would be making a promise to each other. Sometimes, it's just one person promising to another. But whoever is making the promise walks between those pieces. And the message is essentially this. If I don't keep my promise, let me be become like these animals. It's essentially like putting a curse on oneself. Let me be like this if I don't keep my, what I'm saying, what I'm promising. Well, what happens at night begins to fall. The sun had gone down and it was dark. A smoking fire pot with a flaming torch passed between the animal parts. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your descendants I give this land. And so the presence of God, it passes between the pieces of animals. And God says, I'm promising this. I'm making it official. You can know you will get the land. That's in Genesis 15. A couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 17, God is going to take this covenant that he's made with Abraham and he's going to expand it. And he's going to include more promises within it. And part of that um, event we find in, in chapter 17 and verse 7, God says to Abram, I will confirm my covenant as a perpetual covenant between me and you. It will extend to your descendants after you throughout their generations. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And so God used covenant so that Abraham could know for certain he's going to get the land. He's going to repeat that in this text as well. You're going to get the land. But he also adds this other promise. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be the God of, your, of you and your children. And Abraham can know with confidence, I belong to God. God is my God. How does he know it? He knows it because of covenant. God wanted Abraham to be certain of who he was. Well, fast forward through hundreds of years. In our next snapshot, we find ourselves standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has led some of the descendants of Abram, these children of Israel, the tribes of Jacob. He, he's led them out of bondage in, in Egypt, slavery, and they go into the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai where God said to go after he would bring them out. And this snapshot is we're at the foot of Mount Sinai. In just a little bit in, at this story, the, the mountain is going to begin to shake as if with a tremendous earthquake. There, there's going to be fire on top of the mountain that will burn the top of the mountain, turning it black. There's going to be a loud sound like a trumpet blowing out of this mountain. And what leads up to this is God calls Moses up the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain and he learns on the mountain what God wants to do for this people that he's just rescued out of Egypt. So he goes up and the Lord called him from the mountain, thus you will tell the house of Jacob and declare to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. 
and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you will diligently listen to me and keep my covenant, then you will be my special possession out of all nations. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the Israelites. Moses discovers on the mountain that God wants to give a new covenant, a covenant to Israel to be a holy nation, to be this kingdom of priests, his special possession. And they need to keep that covenant that God is going to offer to them. God wants his people, his Israel, he's going to claim them, but he wants them to know for certain that they belong to him. And he's going to do it through a covenant. How was Israel to know that they belonged to God? Because God promised a relationship. Was it based on how good they were? Did they earn a relationship with God that, that God said, well, you know what? I'm going to take you to be my people because you're such special, great people. Uh, the, the text indicates contrary. <laughs> okay? No, you're stubborn. No, you're stiff-necked. No, God in grace goes, I'm going to give this relationship to you, and it's based on my promise in this covenant to claim you as my people, as my special possession. Israel was to keep the stipulations of that covenant. So we come to Exodus chapter 24 now, and there's going to be a ceremony. A ceremony by which God is going to claim Israel as his, and by which they know they have now entered into this special relationship God is offering them. <clears throat> Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. So what's happened is, there's been Ten Commandments, there's been other laws for a holy nation. How do, how do a people live? How does a nation function as a holy nation? Well, we've just read that in, in Exodus from, from chapter 20 up to 24. And now in 24, there's this reading of all that God has said. And the people go, yes, we'll do everything that God says. We'll keep this covenant that God is offering us. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses will take half of the blood from these sacrifices, and he puts it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkles on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant... The, the, the book describing this relationship between God and Israel and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. With this ceremony, God says, now it's real. You've agreed to it. We've taken the blood of the covenant where I'm claiming you as my people and that blood has been put on you and you are mine. And now live. Live the lives that I've given you. And so this 
blood of the sacrifice is put on the people, sprinkled on them, and Israel enters into this relationship, a relationship that God extends in grace, a relationship where they are his people and are to live in his ways. Could Israel be confident that they were God's people? Yes. Why? Because at Mount Sinai, God claimed us as his people by the covenant and the, the blood of the covenant. And so our next snapshot propels us forward into history to the time of Jeremiah. And at the time of Jeremiah, unfortunately, God's people have got off the tracks. They're living in all sorts of ways that their heart and their mind says. Um, they're doing what, how they think it ought to be done and how they think life is going to work best. And they've lost the perspective of God. And at that time, God speaks to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. And God says, indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, the, the, a, base, a new basis for a relationship with me. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, but I'll make a new covenant. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. You, you see, if you're born into something, you might grow up and not really want to do it. If, if something's been just stamped on you, forced on you, you might try to find all sorts of loopholes to get around through and under and over it. But in this new covenant community, people are going to want to serve the Lord. It's going to be part of their heart. It's going to be part of their mind. Those in the new covenant are going to want to serve. I've got a suggestion for that, why that is. It's because they understand it and they choose to be a part of it. But the ways of God will be on the hearts and the minds of the people. And at this point, he says, I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. God promises to claim these people as his own. He goes on and says, I will forgive their sin and will call to mind no more the wrong that they have done. There's going to be forgiveness. God's promising that through this relationship. He's promising to claim them as his people. And through Jeremiah, God announced this new basis for a relationship with himself where people could be confident that they belong to him. It has these two wonderful promises. You belong to me. And second, I'm going to forgive you. Well, Jesus' death is where we find ourselves in the next snapshot. This is our final snapshot, stepping through history. We find ourselves staring at three Roman crosses on a hill. And on that center cross, Jesus of Nazareth has been nailed. It's daylight, it's, it's, it's daytime, I should say, but there's darkness that covers the land. It should come to us as no surprise that on the night before this, Jesus, as he sat there with his apostles, and they ate this meal together, and he gave new meaning to the meal, he had described the blood of his death as the blood of the new covenant. 
that is with his blood, he's going to bring into existence that new relationship basis that Jeremiah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier. So Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 records it this way. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Matthew uses slightly different language for the event. He, there we read, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the first time that God has promised to forgive sins. And Jesus mentions that new promise, the promise to forgive sins in association with the, the covenant that's coming and this blood of the covenant. And so in the same language used at Mount Sinai where God took the blood of animals as a basis of relationship, God's now creating a new relationship based on the blood of his son, making possible God's promises. This story of Jesus and his death and the covenant that God made through his death provides us with the, the confidence to know that we are God's people, that what God has said is true. We need to align ourselves with that perspective. We don't need to feel guilty about the past. And because of what God has accomplished, everyone who's in that new covenant can know for certain that God has claimed them as their people and that they're forgiven. In Christ, God has acted, creating a new covenant, promising to save us from our sins and, and adopt us as his people. And we can be confident that whoever's in this new covenant community safely belongs to the Lord. Now, there is one other question that needs to be answered in regard to all of this, and that is how. Um, how do we move from knowing the story of Jesus to being in a position of confidence. Well, Hebrews does confirm that this text quoted in Jeremiah about the new covenant was fulfilled with Jesus. Um, but but how, how? How do we know? Next slide. <laughs> how do we know where, when and where and how we can enter into this confident relationship with the Lord so that we can be who God has said we can be. Next slide. Well, there's some number of texts, and we'll just briefly look at them. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, we're told, you're all sons of God. You belong to God as his people through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, it's not just enough to know what Jesus did. It's not enough to know, but we actually have to, to rely on Christ, to trust in him. And, and that's what this word in its original language means. It, descri it describes this reliance, this trust, this dependence on one. And scripture teaches us that, that if we're going to be in this relationship, it, it's based on faith, trusting in Christ. And similarly, it's going to describe being saved by faith or, or that we must believe in him. And all of this language is, is telling us about the need to rely on Christ. But how? how? How do we come about to rely on him? 
to, to be these children who are forgiven. Paul is going to continue in Galatians 3. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Yeah, you trusted in him, you're relying on Christ, and you've become children of God. You belong to God. And then he goes on to explain this trust, this faith. It involves this baptism that's into the body of Christ. And so, baptism is an act of faith whereby we rely on Christ's death, his resurrection. The Gospel of John is going to teach us the same thing. The text that was read earlier at the beginning, John chapter 1, to all who receive him, speaking of Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, but born of God. And, and here's the thing about that the language here, it's really unfortunate that English is going to use two different words where in the Greek language, the original language, it's the same word, faith and believe. The pistis, pistiuo, the, the two words. One is describing the action of trusting. The other describes the trust that a person has. And, and so here's that language where, where John is writing, yes, it, it's to those that are, are believing, this, it's this response of trust and reliance on Christ that they become children of God. John then, having introduced the idea that we can belong to God as his people, based upon relying on Christ, this new birth, being born of God, goes on to explain more about this this response that leads to becoming God's people in chapter 3, where there's this discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. And, and Jesus will tell Nicodemus that he needs to be born again. And he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Nicodemus was confident in his perspective that he was already in. As a Jew, as a Pharisee, as a leader among the Jewish people, as a teacher of Jews, he was confident in his, in his perspective of himself. But the Lord goes, no, you need to be born again too. And it is one of water and the Spirit. Incidentally, this verse, John 3, 5, was the favorite verse in the early church for baptism. From the second century on, it's quoted more in those ancient documents for baptism than any other verse. And the reason is because it says so clearly how people need to trust and respond to the message of the gospel. This also explains um, th this idea of, of trusting in Christ and, and the, the response involved in it. Why scripture is going to describe baptism as providing the two promises of the covenant. Baptism in Scripture is described as we become God's children. We belong to God. It were described as being forgiven. What's happening? The, what's happening is when people rely on Jesus, they become God's people and they're forgiven. This is occurring when people who believe respond to the message and are baptized. They become God's people and they are forgiven. And so we have texts like this, and I'll just run through these quickly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, speaks about the blood of Christ that can enable us to come with confidence before God. And he says, we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. 
And then he goes on. There's five admonitions after that. One of them is, let us draw near with a sincere heart and the assurance that faith brings. We're trusting in that blood. And he says, because. And he's explaining how their faith has responded that gives them that confidence. Because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean. There's that language of blood being sprinkled again. That covenant language. We have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's tying this this trusting response and, and knowing what Christ's blood does with our bodies being washed in baptism. Also, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter's going to tell the Jews on that day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you're going to receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is for you, it's for your kids, it's, it's for as many as God will call. Later, we find Saul of Tarsus encountering the gospel. And in Acts 22, Paul is recounting how he came to Christ, the moment that, that he became a follower of Christ. Ananias has come to him and said, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When we rely upon Jesus, we receive the benefits of his death. And this reliance upon Christ is called trust or faith. It involves believing that the story is true. It involves acknowledging or confessing him. It involves, the gospel calls us to rely on him by being buried in baptism and raised up again to a new life that his power makes possible, not us. Where does this bring us? It brings us to how God has acted. And he's acted so that we can have confidence and we can know that we are God's people. And we don't need to drag anything from the past nor let Satan use anything from the past to try and wear us down against us. But we can live confidently as God's people. And so my, my encouragement is, is let's boldly, humbly as his servants, but boldly look at the life that God has given us as his new creation. And, and let's live for our Lord, confident of who we are, because he has communicated the perspective that matters through what he has done and revealed about it. This morning, if, if someone has not yet relied on the Lord in the way that the gospel calls us to trust in Jesus. You're invited to come. Or if you'd like to speak with one of the elders or another about this path of following Jesus, maybe there's some other prayer request. Why not come now as we stand and sing?